Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. Amen. Give him a praise offering for his word. Praise God. Thank you, Father, for your holy written word. How we thank you, praise you, bless you, exalt you. Praise God. We want to talk to you this morning about God's memory tools. And our opening text will be 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you know, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. And so these are the words from the word of God. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped saying this cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, notice this is the reason, many are weak, many are sickly among you, and many sleep or die prematurely. For we would not judge, if we, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Praise God. That's a mouthful right there, wouldn't you say? Well, forgetfulness seems to be something that we all deal with in life. Have you ever forgotten anything? Have you ever forgotten to do something? Mm-hmm. Just knowing what I'm speaking about this morning, I heard, overheard people in the narthex there saying, I forgot this, and I forgot that, and I forgot, I thought, hmm. I'm not the only one that forgets certain things. Did you ever forget someone's name that you're talking to? And for some reason, it's just popped. You know them, but it's just, it's gone. Then if you try to ask someone else, what's their name? They, they go, oh yeah. It's, it's contagious. It seems like it's contagious. Then they forget too. Now that you ask me, I forget. Well, did you ever forget someone's number? Maybe a phone number or whatever. Did you ever forget an item that you're supposed to pick up from the store? I'm sure we've all been down that path before, right? Have you ever forgotten your wife's birthday? Have you ever forgotten your wedding anniversary? You better not. Today, what do we deal with? I forgot my phone. There was a time when you, leave, you would leave the house, you didn't need a phone. There wasn't a phone to bring with you, unless you had a really long cord. Right? Isn't that the truth? But not now. Today, I for, you know, you forget the phone. Now, again, once again, knowing what I'm talking about this morning, I left the church Friday evening, um, and my administrative assistant, Sharon Lyons, can attest to this. Very often, I leave the church without my phone. If I go to a hospital visit or something like that, well, Friday evening, I left, and I've got all, almost, I'm about four miles from here that I live, and I got to, almost to where the house was, and I saw my wife leaving to take the puppies down to the puppy park and let them run around. I thought I'll give her a call. Mm-hmm. So I had to turn around and come back four miles back to the church, another four miles to go back home because I forgot to bring my phone with me. So the reality is this. It's easy for us to forget. 
right? Now, you ladies never forgot your purse anyway, right? <laughs> never. Mm -mm. It's easy to forget. And God, knowing our tendencies, he knows us better than we know ourselves, doesn't he? Guess what he does? In the scriptures, he tells us, remember, 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 and don't forget. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and verse 1. Remember. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, when you're a young person, remember the God that you serve, you know, and start serving him at a young age. Look again in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 18. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord God freed you from slavery, so I'm commanding you to do this. Now, notice the, once again, the thought here he's telling us remember remember you say well I wasn't in Egypt I know but you were slave to the devil we were enslaved by the kingdom of darkness were we not well thank God we've been delivered and we've been set free so we need to remember that okay look at the next one the book of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8 remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and then look at Psalm 103 and verse 2 powerful verse bless the Lord O my soul and forget not all his benefits there's a lot of benefits. In the natural, we don't forget our benefits, right? Well, in the spiritual realm, we've got tremendous benefits. And he says, don't forget your benefits. Well, guess what? Look at Psalm 78. Even though God told him not to forget, how oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. So they were defeated because they forgot. They forgot. You see, when you're challenged and when we're attacked in this life, it's easy for us to forget the benefits that belong to us. We're so caught up with the situation that we sometimes forget. There's provision made for that. He's made provision for our needs to be met, and we should never forget that, but they forgot. Well, knowing the tendencies of mankind, look how kind God is. He provided them a memory tool. Look in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, a memory Two. And this is from the New Living Translation. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instruction to the people of Israel throughout the generations to come. You must make tassels for the hems of your clothing and attach them with a blue cord. When you see the tassels, you remember and obey all the commands of the Lord instead of following your own desires and defiling yourselves as you are prone to do. The tassels will help you remember that you must obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that I might be your God. I am the Lord your God. <laughs> Pretty clear, isn't it? In other words, you're going to have these tassels around the hem of your clothing and every time you get dressed, you put them on, you're ready for your day. What do you see the tassels and what are they going to do? Remind you of. They remind you of your need, my need for us to obey God, serve God, right? Now, how many of you have heard or even seen someone do something like this? They tie a string around their finger and to remind them of something. As the day goes on, they forget what they tied it there for. <laughs> so you look up some of those origins of some of those things uh, that we do. And what you discover is they say the Anglo-Saxons way back when, when they started tying things around their finger because they believed if you tied it, then it would prevent the idea from getting out and you would hold it within. But you see, that's not where it originated. It originated way back with God when he said, tie these things around the hem of your clothing so that you can remember when there's only one thing to remember. See, I'm not remembering a thousand items. 
I remember one thing. What's that one thing? Serve me, not yourself. Walk with me, not in your own ways. Can you see that? And that's what he did for them. Now, if you're married, I would say the majority of us who are married, we have a wedding ring on. Anybody have a wedding ring on? Okay. What's it there for? To remind us of something. Of what? Well, if you go back all the way to the very beginning, if you're a man, you left your father and your mother, you cleave, cleave to your wife and become one with her. And when you make a decision to get married, you enter into a relationship because you denied yourself for what reason to become heirs together in the grace of life with someone else. If you are the husband, then you made a covenant with your spouse that you were going to love her as Christ loved the church and you're going to love her as you love your own flesh. If you are the wife, then you made a, a blood covenant relationship with somebody where you say to that person that I'm going to submit myself to you as the head of this union and reverence you and respect you and honor you in this relationship. Uh, also, when you look at that ring, what you see is you, you said, I'm not going to defraud you. I'm not going to uh, abuse you. I am not going to desert you. And I'm not going to abuse you. That's what you're saying. And that's your eternal reminder right there. As you live your life upon this earth, you're going to remind yourself that you've got that ring on. And also, what about this one? You gave up your rights to an independent lifestyle to become this heir of the grace of God, right? When you gave up that right, you also gave up your right to say, I don't love you anymore. I know sometimes people don't like to hear that, but you gave up that right. Because you see, your love for that person is no longer based on feelings and emotions. Your love for that person is now based on a decision and a principle. You made a decision to love that person for the rest of his or her life. And because you made that decision, your feelings have no part to play in it whatsoever. But I don't, don't feel like I love her anymore. Or I don't feel like I love him anymore. So what's that got to do with it? I don't feel like I'm paying my mortgage anymore. <laughs> Take that to the bank. <laughs> They're going to look at you and just say, so what's that got to do with it? <laughs> You made a decision to love somebody for the rest of his or her life. And we need to get it right. Amen? Now I better stop right there on that one. <clears throat> All right, then what about this, the Lord's Supper? He understands and he knows it's very easy for us to forget things. And sometimes we can just do things just to do things and not really remember why we're doing it. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, that is his memory tools for us. To remind us of something. Some vital truths. Important truths. Number one, the sacrifice that Jesus made. The sacrifice of our Lord. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, look at what it says. This is God's words translation. It's the, it's the same way with the Son of Man. He didn't come so that others could serve Him. He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. When we celebrate this, this supper this morning, the Lord's Supper, first and foremost, we're to remember his sacrifice, how he became sin for us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, how he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Do you remember that? Why should we remember that? Because you and I were sin. And as sinners, we would be suffering eternal separation from God in a place of tremendous discomfort. But because God made him to be sin for us, hallelujah. 
we don't have to suffer separation and eternal punishment because God made Jesus to be sin for us. Also, Galatians 3.13, he became the curse for us. Look at Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. On that tree, he became the curse for you. He became the curse for me. And that curse of the law is poverty, sickness, and death. That curse of the law means that anything and everything evil that can happen to us is right there. And he redeemed us from that. He was made the curse for us so that we would not have to incur the curse upon ourselves. That the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ is the next verse, verse 14. Guess what? You and I are blessed. So because we're blessed, we can't be cursed. Thank God because Jesus became the curse for us, you and I cannot be cursed. We can only be blessed. And if someone has deceived you into thinking that you could be under a curse, go to the word of God. Not someone else's experience. Go to the word of God. Christ redeemed you from the curse. And go back and study out the curse and you'll find out that you can't curse those that God has blessed. And since you've been blessed, praise God, you cannot be cursed and will never be able to be cursed. But also number three, we see that he suffered death for all of us. I'm sorry, he paid our sin debt in full. Look at First Peter. He paid our sin debt in full. If someone came along today and paid your mortgage off, would you be happy? A little happier than that. Oh, if someone came, came along and paid off your child's um, college education, would you be happy? <laughs> or your college education, would you be happy? If you had out a business loan and someone came along and just paid the whole thing off and said that you're free, you're debt free, would you be happy? Uh, any, any takers out there? <laughs> okay. Realize that you weren't set free from the worthless life handed down to you from your ancestors by a payment of silver or gold, which can be destroyed. Rather, the payment that freed you was the precious blood of Christ, the lamb with no defects or imperfections. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Did you hear that? Your sin debt has been paid in full. And when you said yes to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, he got out his rubber stamp, he dipped it in the blood of the lamb, and he punched it across your soul saying, debt paid in full. Hallelujah. You owe nothing. You've been set free. Your sin debt has been paid. Ah, glory be to God. Go ahead. Let's praise him for a moment for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. How we praise you and thank you and bless you and exalt you this morning for paying our sin debt in full. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Next, he suffered death for all of us. This is from the New Living Translation, Hebrews. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9. What do we see is, what we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Hallelujah. Did you get that? He tasted death for everyone. You know what the sad scenario is? It's this. He's tasted death for everyone, but not everyone is going to accept his sacrifice, so they'll have to taste death for themselves. Mm. 
And that's a long time. Eternity is a long time. But he tasted death for you. He tasted death for me. He tasted death for all of us. He took it upon himself to liberate us and set us free from the pains of darkness and death. Thank God for Jesus. He says, remember my sacrifice. Because if it were not for him, well, you and I are gone. Lost forever. So are you thankful for Jesus? So let's remind ourselves of this. Number two, we're to remind ourselves of the love behind the sacrifice. The motivation behind that sacrifice. You see, in John 15, 13, these are the very words of Jesus. Greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You know, when someone says to me, God doesn't really love me. Oh my goodness, you're looking in the wrong places. You're, you know, what's happening is you, you're thinking that God's love for you is going to be shown by maybe doing something for you today. I guarantee you, if he did something for you today and tomorrow you had another need, you feel the same way. No one really cares about me because, you see, when we get saved, it doesn't mean that we live a life of, of ease. It doesn't mean we're not challenged. Jesus said you're going to have tribulation in this world. But God's love for us is seen on the cross. Greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. People think that the nails held him to the cross, but it wasn't the nails. It was love that held him to the cross. Look in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God commended or introduced his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, hallelujah. That demonstrates his love for us, to lay down his life. The beauty of it is this. You know, we could lay down our lives for people upon the earth, but that's temporal. Jesus laid down his life, and that's eternal. Not just temporal. You know, it's sad that this one Navy SEAL lost his life to try to spare all these other, that soccer team when they were in the cave, remember? And one Navy SEAL, to show you how dangerous it was, Navy SEALs are well trained and highly developed in their rescuing skills, right? But he lost his life. But he was willing, just like our firefighters of today, our first responders of today, to lay down their lives for the benefit of others. And you know, we, we're to honor them for that. Just like you're armed forces. They're willing to lay down their lives for our freedoms and all that. And we thank God for that. But you see, their effectiveness can only go so far. But there's someone who went beyond our imagination. Because what he became on that cross is beyond human understanding or even definition or explanation. When he was made sin on that cross for you and for me, it's beyond what our, we could wrap our brains around. His body was so marred more than any man that he didn't appear human-like. But that was only the outward external part of it. But his spirit became sin for us. He took upon himself our sin nature. He took upon himself the curse, the brunt of the wrath of Almighty God for all of us. And what nailed him to that cross was his love for humanity. He does not want one person to be separated from him for eternity. He knows how awful hell is where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I guarantee you it doesn't matter how vile a person is on this earth, he still doesn't want them to make their final bed in that place of eternal suffering. Even when you study the rich man and Lazarus story in the Bible, these two certain men, and you see this man, this rich man, in Hades or hell suffering, 
He is suffering so badly he wants Lazarus to come and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue. Imagine that. A man when he was on this earth he was rich, rich and wealthy. And what he would do is live high off the hog. Bark out orders to whoever would bow to his wealth. But he wouldn't give Lazarus a breadcrumb. A beggar. So now he's in that place of eternal suffering. He is aware of his separation and his hurt and pain. He's now crying out for some relief. And who does he cry out to? Lazarus, a beggar, who he wouldn't even give anything. But that man, being in that conscious state of suffering, said, you can't help me. I got five brothers on the earth. Think about that. This is a place of eternal suffering. He remembers he has five brothers on the earth. It is so awful that even though he can't be helped, he wants his brothers to be helped. Send someone back and go talk to them. Help them to understand their need to stay far away from this place. But Abraham said, we can't do that. Aren't you glad, my brother and my sister, that someone thought so much of us that he took our place in that place of suffering so that you and I would never, ever, ever have to go to that place of suffering? Aren't you glad he bore the brunt of the wrath of God for you and for me? That was love that sent him to do that. So if someone says, God doesn't really love me, you really don't know God. You don't know his sacrifice. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the plan of redemption. You don't, you don't understand. You see, it's only when we begin to line up with God and we begin to understand and know him better and better and more and more and realize that the Savior is more important than the saving that the healer is more important healer than the healing. That the giver is more important than the giving. I want to know his heartbeat. And you look at that and you just say, Jesus, it's hard for me to imagine. You love me that, that much. Also, Jesus is love's gift to the world. We know the verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you want to know love, look at what he did. And then thirdly, notice here, we can't know God without knowing love. In 1 John 4, 7 and 8, 4, 7 through 10 rather. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. Everyone that's born of God knoweth God. He that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loves not does not know God. It was, it, in this was manifested the love toward us. Notice this. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the true revelation of love. That he came, the son of God came to demonstrate God's love by taking our place, dying our death, becoming our curse and sin, suffering what we should have suffered, and then being raised from the dead to eliminate all those things from our lives. Is it a sad scenario when you understand that people who don't see that will suffer eternally needlessly when they don't have to because someone did it for them hard to imagine isn't it but to reject Christ is to reject his sacrifice and also his redemption notice number three also to pay our sin debt we're reminding ourselves number one of his sacrifice we're reminding ourselves of the love behind the sacrifice we celebrate this meal, this supper, reminding ourselves that we are indebted to love. We have been called upon by God to love. Let's look at our verse. 
Here we understand in 1 John 3.16. And notice how easy it is to remember. You know John 3.16. This is 1 John 3.16. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. We ought. The word ought in the Greek actually means we owe it to him. We owe it to him. To lay down our lives for the brethren. We are indebted to love. We are to love as he loved us. Look at John 13. This is the commandment of the new covenant. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Notice this. As I have loved you that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. We are indebted to love as he loved us. And then also uh, it's important that we understand. Look at Romans 13 and verse 8. We owe this love to everyone. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loves another has fulfilled the law. One translation says he's fulfilled all the requirements of the law. So this means as we celebrate this supper, we remind ourselves of the fact we are to be love directed and love guided. And all the motivation behind all the activities of our lives is found in love. And we're talking about divine love. We're talking about agape love. We're not talking about the lower forms of love, but the highest form of love. The love of God that's been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We're all called upon by him to love others as he loved us. So that others can see that we are disciples of the Lord. So we remind ourselves this morning, am I walking in love? Am I loving others the way Christ loved me? Am I putting others above myself and preferring others above my, my, my own life in actuality, that I'm laying down my life for other people. I'm not pursuing my own things. I want the things of God in my life. So it reminds us, we remind ourselves of these three important truths. But then also look in 1 Corinthians, not first, put number four up there. First of all, we remind ourselves of the fact that he's coming again. And that is the future return of Jesus. Look at chapter 11, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians. Once again, let's remind ourselves. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup. What are we doing? Showing the Lord's death. Notice this last part of the expression. Till he come. He's coming again. Beloved, he's coming again. And we believe his return is imminent. Now when it comes to his return, it's up to, important to us to know that he already declared that he's coming again. No matter what other people say, we know he's coming again. Uh, he himself said in John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. So he made it very clear, I'm coming again. So in other words, we need to recognize that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, who was crucified on Calvary, who was raised on the third day, made a bold declaration that I am coming again. All the things that he's already supported and proven by his resurrection from the dead tell us he means he's coming again. He's coming again, praise God, and we need to be prepared for his coming again. Now, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, this is when they saw him ascend from the Mount of Olives. Notice this. When he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, angels, 
which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up to, into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Notice he's coming the same way that he went up. So here he's on the Mount of Olives, and they see him go and ascend into heaven, and the angels make it very clear. So he said to himself that he's coming again. The angels are agreeing to the fact that he's coming again. And it's up to us to recognize the fact that he's coming again. And so we know that he's coming again. He's going to come back to this earth. But I want you to see something here. There are two phases or two aspects to his second coming. The first aspect is what we call the rapture of the church. The second aspect of his coming is his coming in the second coming at the end of the tribulation period when he fights to defend Jerusalem and Israel. And so I'm going to give you four different differences, four differences between the two because many are confused today about the second coming of our Lord. So when we say the second coming, let's remember this. There's A and B, two parts, two aspects to the second coming of Jesus. So part A will be the rapture and part B will be his return on the Mount of Olives, if we could say it that way. So it's not confusing to other people, it's divided into two aspects. So we can understand it. Okay, number one. The place where he meets believers. Where is he going to meet believers? Well, let's read it and see. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Where's the meeting place? In the air we're going to meet the Lord in the air. The second aspect is, as we said, the Mount of Olives. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth, and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. So where's the meeting place? Mount of Olives. So part A, the rapture, where do they meet? In the air. Part B, where do they meet? On the Mount of Olives. So we can see the distinction between point A and point B. All right. Number two, who removes the people from the earth? Who is it that does it? Well, part A, which we call the rapture of the church, this first aspect, the Lord himself. Look, once again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, for the Lord himself the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So we see here it's the Lord himself. And as we studied our feast days, we know this is the feast of trumpets, and it's the high priest who blows the trumpet to call the harvesters off of the harvest field to come in and worship. And so we see it's the Lord himself who comes with a shout, and it's the Lord himself who is the one who uh, removes the people from the earth. But now go to point two. Aspect two. 
it's a different aspect. Angels. It's not Christ himself, but look at Matthew's gospel. Angels come and remove the people. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. So when we see the first aspect of it, it's the rapture of the church before the seven-year tribulation period. And the second aspect of it, Jesus comes in his second coming after the seven-year tribulation. In the first aspect of it, we see that Jesus himself removes the people. In the second aspect, we see that it's angels at work removing the people. And then thirdly, look at our third point. The difference between the first and second aspects. Who are taken and who are left? We already saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, who's taken? Believers. You know, every time I do a funeral service and every time we go to a cemetery and every time we're in a chapel somewhere or sometimes even at the gravesite, I will stand there and look around and declare we are standing on resurrection soil and one day these graves are going to open and one day the dead in Christ are going to rise, praise God. And we that are alive and remain are caught up, we're going to meet them in the sky. That's the first aspect of it. Can you imagine watching those graves pop open? Imagine you haven't got a word to describe it, the magnitude of the greatness of Almighty God to take every person's ashes and once again making them alive, coming out of a grave, praise God. You say, is that even possible? With God, all things are possible. When Jesus came out of the grave, when he arose from the dead, there were others that came out of their graves and went to the city of Jerusalem and proclaimed that he's the Messiah. So apparently it's within the scope of his power to be able to do something like that. Can you say amen to that? So that's the first aspect of it, praise God. And we know it's going to happen. But also uh, the second, unbelievers that are left behind, uh, they're going to be, Taken, but notice this. We who are alive are going to remain. Let's read it. Matthew 13. So shall it be at the end of the world that the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So now we see that they're removed and believers remain. And believers are ushered into a thousand year millennial reign of Christ where they're going to live on this earth. We're going to reign with him on earth for 1,000 years. He's going to rule and reign as the prince of peace, praise God. And there's going to be peace on this, war, in this earth, on this planet like it's never experienced before because the prince of peace will be here. And there's a lot to be said about that. But we're showing the distinct difference between these two aspects of his second coming. The rapture of the church and then the second coming of Christ when he removes all unbelievers. So in the rapture, believers are removed. In the second coming, who's removed? Unbelievers are removed. Number four. When Jesus comes in, in relation to the tribulation period, we know, first of all, in order for us to understand God, we need to know the word, but we also have to understand the character of God. His word and his character. God is love and God is light. And in him is there no darkness whatsoever. He is absolute love. He's absolute life. He's absolute light. So it's important we understand that God deals with absolutes. You realize anything and everything he's ever done, there's not been one iota of a mistake. He's unlike us, wouldn't you say? 
never makes a mistake in every given situation. You can say that it's covered from A to Z. Well, first aspect, look at this in Revelation chapter 3. The first aspect is the rapture of the church. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. He's going to keep us from that. Notice. Look at the next one. First Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 1. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And then chapter uh, 5 and verse 9. Notice, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. Can you echo this with me? I don't have a wrath appointment. But those that believe otherwise, apparently they have one. But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not appointed us to wrath. But thank God he's appointed us to victory. So in the first aspect of it, this segment of the church. The church has been on the earth for how many years? Over 2,000 years? Not any segment of the church would then go to the tribulation period. Except, like others say, those that are alive and remain. It stands the reason that God's not going to let one small part of the church that's been washed in the blood of the Lamb to go through a seven-year horrific period of tribulation when we know that whole seven-year period goes back to Israel to get them to wake up, look up, and accept the blood of Jesus Christ for their redemption. It's all about them. Gentile time ends. Jewish time begins once again. In those seven years, they're going to think in the first three and a half years that we've got it made. We've got, it, we've got the Messiah here. There's peace among us. He's, he's given us once again prestige among the nations of the world. He's going to rise up as a superstar in all their eyes. But midway through the seven-year seven period, three and a half years into it, He's going to turn on them and want to be worshipped as the living God Himself. And they're going to realize... Uh-oh, we made a humongous mistake. And by the end of the seven years, when all the nations of the world gather around Israel and Jerusalem to destroy them and wipe them off the planet, they will then lift up their eyes and see Jesus, their Messiah, coming, praise God, to do battle, the battle of Armageddon, and fight for his own people and deliver them and set them free. Those seven years have nothing to do with the church. Those seven years have everything to do with Israel and their unbelief. And putting an end to sin in, in, in all the, the nation. So, look at this, this here in Matthew 24. The second aspect of it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall give, not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now listen to this. The first time he came, who knew? 
not too many people really knew. Mary gave birth to a little baby in a manger. And not a whole lot of people knew what was going on. When he comes the second time, he's not coming as an innocent little baby. He's coming to fight for his own as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the great I am. And he's coming to this earth. He said, you want to mess with this? Let's have at it. You want a piece of me? Let's go to battle right now. And all the armies of the nations of the world will then look up and see him, including the Israeli army itself, and they will recognize that he's the Son of God, their Messiah, that they crucified, whose blood was shed for their redemption, and that is when they'll accept his atoning blood, praise God, as a sacrifice for their sin. Hallelujah. And that's at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Then there'll be a thousand years millennial reign of Christ. And then uh, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. He'll be loose for a season to try to tempt those that were born without his presence being upon the earth. And that explains that kind of. And then there's going to once again be the battle of Gog and Magog. Who, who's, I, I want to put it this way. Who's wise enough and smart enough to defeat God? No one. So then Who's really dumb enough to try? <laughs> right? And that's exactly what they're trying. So as we celebrate, what are we celebrating? What are we reminding ourselves of? You got your little string around your finger? Did you put on your tassels this morning? What a sacrifice that saved our lives. Oh, what love that nailed him to the cross. Am I paying my sin debt to love you as he loved me? Are you loving others the way he loved you? Showing them mercy and forgiveness and loving kindness? Think about it. And are you aware that he's coming again? And he's coming soon. Oh, he's coming in clouds for us. He's coming to fight at the end of the tribulation period. But for you and for me, we're not appointed to wrath. But thank God to be with him in glory. And you're coming with him, by the way. Trust me, for seven years you're going to be trained in the army of the Most High God. And you're going to know how to use your authority with great power and might. Hallelujah.